Welcome to the Peckway Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. At Peckway, our mission is to transform lives by connecting people with God and with each other. It's our hope that this message will give you hope and encourage you to take the next step in your journey with Christ. For more information about our services and weekly ministries, visit us at peckwaychurch.com. Would you stand with me as we begin worship? Psalm 122.1 says, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Let's worship him. We're here together, praising him in his house. This verse says he is the God who was, who is, and we know he's the God who is to come. the God who is. We worship the God who evermore will be. He opened the prison doors. He parted the raging sea. My God, he holds the victory. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. We shout out
Pequay Church, you can go ahead and be seated. Thank you so much for being here. I know it's a chilly morning. Thank you for braving the cold and coming out. And those of you who are at home, you're warm, I'm sure, there at your house as well. Thank you for viewing online with us this morning here at Pequay Church as well. Well, inside of your bulletin is a green connection card. I'm going to invite us all to take that out. Go ahead and start filling that out. Even now, as I'm speaking online, there's going to be a connect link that you'll find in the chat window there. Let us know that you're here this morning viewing with us us and uh, in person, and we love to reach out and say hello and thank you for being a part of our service. On the back of that card is also a place that you can write your prayer request or any questions or comments that you have here at Pequay Church, and also some some uh, things that you can find there about a decision you might want to make today or more information that you would like to find out or how you can make a difference as well. And you'll find those same things online in that chat window there with that connect link as well. Well, I'm excited that we're back this week to, to worship. I missed being with you guys last week, and uh, I hope you the same, that we weren't able to meet, I know, because of the, uh, the weather, but I'm so glad that we can be here today. And we're continuing our sermon series that these uh, talking about these great men and women of the Bible, the great heroes of the faith. And so today, we're going to be talking about Queen Esther, and we're going to talk about courage. And the opposite of courage is fear. I don't know about you guys, but in all of my devotional studies, I don't know if I'm afraid or something, but God is telling me, don't be afraid. So the opposite of courage is fear. So fear not. God is with us. And so we're going to see how Esther uh, had the courage. And even though she was afraid, she believed in God and that God was going to to do whatever was necessary, whether it was she had to give her life for, some, for the cause of Christ or of God, and then or if he was going to spare. And so we're going to see today in that story how God used her faith and the courage that she had to be able to follow God. So maybe you need that courage today. Some place that God had you. Uh, we'll see in Esther that he said, that her, her, uh, her uncle said, if it for such a time as this, this place that God has put you, is that at this time that he has a purpose, and we all have a purpose. And so as we are going to listen to God's word today, I want you to be encouraged to take the courage to be able to face whatever situation that you're in right now. Well, today, as we continue our worship together with singing, we're going to stand once again. Go ahead and do that with me. But we're going to talk about this story that we can share, talking about who our Jesus is. And so would you join me in singing this song together with me as we sing about my Jesus? Are you past the point of weary? Is your burden weighing heavy? Is it all too much to carry? Let me tell you about my Jesus. Do you feel that empty feeling? Cause shame's done all the stealing. And you're desperate for some healing. Let me tell you about my Jesus. He makes a way where there ain't no way. Rises up from an empty grave. Ain't no sinner that he can't save. Let me tell you about my Jesus. 
change our lives. Let's continue worshiping him as we sing this song that again keeps telling us today and reminding us of who Jesus is and the victory we can have through him.
one more time as we tell Jesus that we trust him today. Would you let your heart do that? Sing that with me. We trust you. We trust you. Your ways are higher than our own. We trust you. Yes, we trust you. pray with me. Father, we thank you. God, that your ways are so much higher than our own ways. God, the things that we might try to do in our own strength, our own power, Father, fall short. Lord, when it comes to the decisions that we need to make, the things, the plans that we need to make, Father. Lord, as we hear your word today, as we see the courage that Esther had to uh, depend on you, Father, to um, step out in faith in spite of the fear she, she was experiencing, Lord, as she uh, was asked to do this great and hard thing, Father. And I know in our own lives that there are many hard decisions, many things that in our daily walks that challenge us, Father. But we thank you that you have the power. We sing about victory to overcome today. Lord, we've talked about and sang about, Lord, these things, Father, that uh, the character and who you are and the, the miracles that you've worked in people's hearts and lives and uh, probably in our own hearts and lives, God, and the, the, the story that we can tell. So, Lord, uh, as we hear your word, would you strengthen our hearts to be able to take the courage to do what you're asking us to do today and also to share with those that we meet each day in our work uh, if we're in school, uh, if we're in the grocery store, wherever we are, Father, that we would have the courage to tell other people about your amazing love. And we thank you and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, worship team. And I don't know about you, but uh, as we sang that song, my mind went to David's words in Psalm 37. He says, I was young and now I'm old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken. And I'll be honest with you folks that, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if I relish getting older. I mean, it's more and more people I could look in their 20s and 30s and go, you know what, I'm old enough to be their father. 
But I'll tell you one thing I do relish about getting older, and that's this, that I can say with credibility like I could when I was in my 30s and 40s. I was young, and now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken. And I hope that reality is true for you today. For some of you, you're on the front end of your journey, and I know it's true for you. And for others of you like myself, you've been on that journey for 30, 40 years, and the depth of being able to say, God has never forsaken me. Maybe like Mother Teresa has frightened you a few times, but has never forsaken you. There is a depth to that, and I hope and encourage you to hold on to that, and especially as we launch into this message this morning about Esther. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you are familiar with the poem, Footprints in the Sand? Can I just see your hands? How many of you? Yeah, I, shortly after I was a new believer, a new Christian, my mother, while I was off to college, my mother sent me that poem, and if you're not familiar with it, and I loved it, it carried me through so many challenging days as a young believer, a new believer. Um, but if you're not familiar with it, what it really is, it's, 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 a, it's a poem, but it's, it's really kind of a story about a man who saw his life in a dream from the perspective of walking on a beach with God. And he noticed as he walked along that there were two sets of footprints in the sand. One were his and the others were God's. But he said, I noticed that at the most difficult times in my life, there was only one set of footprints in the sand. So he said, I asked God about it. And God's response to him, again, in this poem, was, son, in those moments, I was carrying you. Now, again, the, the point of the poem is really help you and me understand, highlight one of the significant realities of our relationship with God. That in those difficult times of our life, those challenging times, those painful times in our life, God does not abandon us. In fact, he draws close to us. He is, he is closer than a brother. That he really does carry us and care for us in those moments. It reveals his compassion. But someone a few years ago actually rewrote that poem. They wanted to highlight another reality of our relationship with God. And that reality being this, that in those moments of difficulty and challenge, not only does God want to comfort and care for us, but God also wants us to grow. He wants us to lean into faith. He wants us to walk by faith and not by sight. He wants us to, to trust and really, if you will, persevere and ultimately grow through the experience. So they rewrote the poem, and I'm going to read it for you. I find it helpful, equally helpful as the original. Here's what it says. One night, I had a wondrous dream. One set of footprints there was seen. The footprints of my precious Lord, but mine were not along the shore. But then some different prints appeared, and I asked the Lord, what have we here? Those prints are large and round and neat. But Lord, they're too big for feet. My child, he said in somber tones, for miles I carried you alone. I challenged you to walk in faith, but you refused and made me wait. You disobeyed. You would not grow. The walk of faith you would not know. So I got tired. I got fed up. And there I dropped you on your butt. Because in life there comes a time when one must fight and one must climb. And one must rise and take a stand or leave their butt prints in the sand. <laughs> now I like that, folks. Because it does really reveal that reality. That in, along with his compassion, along with his grace, God wants to give us the grace that we need to be more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. And in his book, Great by Choice, Jim Collins kind of alludes to that. Now, he's coming from a secular perspective, but he really alludes to the fact that how we have a tendency as human beings to look at our lack of success, or what we might call our lack of greatness, and we, would, we tend to point toward our circumstances. We tend to point toward our bad luck rather than looking at ourselves and pointing to our inactivity or maybe even our lack of discipline. And so he did extensive research really in the business community looking at businesses about how some of these companies really were great by choice 
And here's what he summarized. I want you to, to listen to his findings. He says, here's what our research revealed. If there's one overarching message arising from more than 6,000 years of combined corporate history across our research, it would be this. Greatness is not primarily a matter of circumstance. Greatness is first and foremost a matter of choice. Now, if that's true, if truly it is a fact that greatness is a choice, then the question you and I need to ask is this. What choices do we need to make? What are the essential choices in your life and mind that we need to make if we truly want to live a life that is great for God? And that's what this series is about as we kick off the new year. We're looking at the lives of five individuals, three men and two women, that truly by any measure were great. I mean, truly great individuals. Great for God, great in their personal life, great professionally. In every way, these people were great. And we're going to zero in, and we've been doing that, at the one significant single choice that each of them made in their life that set them up for greatness. Now, if you're here two weeks ago, we kicked off the series, you may remember, by looking at Solomon and his choice for wisdom. And today, what we're going to do, we're going to look at a woman by the name of Esther and her choice for sacrifice. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of Esther, maybe this is you know, kind of new to the Bible or it's been a while since you read the story, let me just kind of give you kind of the cliff notes, if you will, on Esther. Esther was a descendant of the Jews who were deported from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians. So we're talking, you know, the, the early or the really, really the ancient Near East times. And here's the thing that's significant, and this is really what carries the story along. Esther's parents died while she was young. And so she was raised by her cousin Mordecai. And Mordecai, by every account, what we have in in the book, it's clear, the record, that he was a good and godly man. Well, Esther grew up to be just an incredibly beautiful woman. In fact, when Nebuchadnezzar's successors, a king by the name of Xerxes, how's that for a name? But Xerxes decided, you know, he, he, he kind of dethroned his, his queen, and he, he ordered his leaders to go looking, search his empire for a new queen. And as they searched the entire empire for a new queen for Xerxes, no one could be found more desirable than Esther. And so Xerxes crowned her queen. But here's the thing, Xerxes did not know that she was a Jew. And the reason he didn't know is because Mordecai, her cousin, had been clear to her, do not reveal your nationality to anyone. Because even back then, and it has been the history, and that's a whole other message, a whole other conversation, there was anti-Semitism. And the reality is, she becomes queen, but then on the tail end of that, after that fact, a man by the name of Haman came to prominence. He, he kind of weaseled, that's my phrase, not the Bible, but he weaseled his way into Xerxes' affections and goodwill. And as a result of that, what Xerxes did, he actually ordered that all his other leaders in his empire would bow down to Haman. And everyone did. That is, everyone but Mordecai. Because Mordecai, as a follower of God, refused, believed that he should bow before no one but God. And so he refused to bow before Haman. Well, that just infuriated Haman. Haman's sense of self-importance was put off by that, and so he decided not only did he come up with a plan to kill Mordecai, but he came up with a plan to wipe out the entire Jewish race. And the plan really was this. He began to tell the king, Xerxes, that the Jews were an incredible threat to his empire, that they wouldn't submit to him. They had a higher allegiance, an allegiance to some other king than Xerxes, and so they were a threat to the stability and security of the empire. And so what he did is after the king began to believe that lie, 
he, he convinced the king to, to pass an edict that would basically allow people to kill the Jews and keep their property. And really the logic of that, and you can think about that, see, Haman knew that if, if people could financially prosper from killing the Jewish people, it wouldn't be long before the Jewish people were annihilated. Okay, that's historical context, and the reason I took the time to share that with you is because here's what we need to understand. That was the crisis. That was the crisis that set Esther up for greatness, to make this choice for greatness. Take a look at your outline. Let me read it to you. Here's what we read in Esther chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. Ancient Near East, this was a way of expressing deep, deep remorse and sorrow. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province in which the edict and order of the king came, there was a great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. So Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destructions of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her, and he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and to plead with him for her people. Now, here's what I want you to understand and what you ought to see in those first eight verses of chapter four. It doesn't reveal to us the choice that Esther made that made her great, but here's what it does reveal to us. It reveals to us her unique opportunity. And the reason I mention that is this, folks, in your life and mine, in every one of our lives, somewhere along the line, perhaps multiple times along the line, in your life and mine, God will give us similar opportunities to do something great, to do something significant, to do something life-changing, maybe even world-changing. And folks, what we need to understand about that, those moments are divine in origin, supernatural in purpose, and eternal in consequence, okay? That's what we need to understand about these moments. And in fact, the New Testament writers had a word for these moments. They called them kairos moments, kairos moments. Now, if you're familiar with biblical Greek, and you're probably not, and that is fine, you don't need to be. But in the New Testament Greek, there are two words for time. The first word is chronos, or chronos, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And you probably, when you hear that, go, well, I, I recognize that, right? It's the word from which we get our word chronology or chronological. And it refers to a duration of time. It refers to calendar time. But the Jewish people had a second word for time, and that word was kairos. And we don't have an equivalent in the English language for kairos because unlike chronos, which has to do with calendar time, kairos has to do with the quality of time. In other words, it has to do with a moment in time, a moment in your life and mine, that ultimately is, is, is incredibly important in terms at the deepest level, in terms of who we are, who we're becoming, and the impact we might have with our life. Those are kairos moments. Well, if we think about the story, and you think about what I just read to you, Esther's kairos moment was obvious, wasn't it? She could use her position as queen to prevent the annihilation of her people. Now, you would think, at least I would think, and maybe you agree or disagree, but I would think 
that when God gives us the opportunity to do something great with our life, to live a significant life, we would jump at it, right? Would most of you agree with that? That when God would give us the opportunity, we would just jump at it. But that's not the way it works a lot of times, is it? And the reason it doesn't work that way, folks, is because whenever you and I come face to face with the opportunity to do something significant with our life, we also come face to face with the cost of doing it. That's just the reality. And when you and I are faced with the cost of doing something great, of living a significant life for God, we count the cost and we count it carefully. We count it exactly. And it was no different for Esther. Esther counted the cost. I want you to take a look at what it says. It says, Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king has but one law, that he or she is to be put to death. The only exception to this is if the king extends the golden scepter to him or her and spares their life. But 30 days have passed since I've been called to go to the king. Now, you see what's going on there, don't you? I mean, we all do. It's obvious. I mean, Esther clearly sees the opportunity, but she also clearly sees the huge cost. I mean, Esther was, was not only a beautiful woman, she was a wise and intelligent woman. So she realized that, that what Mordecai was asking her to do could not only just possibly cause her, cost her her position and the privilege and the perks that went along with that, but Esther realized this could cost me my life. I could be executed because of what you're asking me to do. Which brings us ultimately to the choice that Esther made that set her up for greatness. You see, Esther chose in that moment to sacrifice. And yet, here's the thing. I know about me, maybe it's true about you. If there's any aversion we have as human beings, fallen human beings, imperfect human beings, even redeemed fallen imperfect human beings, one of the aversions that we have is making sacrifices. Which is why when we, we find ourselves presented with the opportunity to do something great, to live a significant life, when we find ourselves in this position um, of, of really sacrificing in order for the purposes of God to go forward, what we tend to do is we count the cost, and if the cost is too high, we let the cost count us out. We just allow it to count us out. Because, and the reason for that is because our bias isn't, you know what, to have less, to do more, to have our career, our reputation potentially put on the line. Because yes, we want to be great, but not at any cost. We have a limit. We have a price beyond which we're unwilling to pay. I want to tell you a true story. It's a story about a, a young man by the name of William Borden, who was the heir to the Borden Dairy fortune, which we all recognize. But as a, a high school graduation present, because again, his family was incredibly wealthy. They gave him a trip around the world. And as William Borden traveled Europe and Asia and the Middle East, he found his heart becoming increasingly burdened for the forgotten, for the hurting, for the lost in the world. And so on that trip around the world, he resolved to prepare for the mission field, to prepare to serve as a missionary the rest of his life. And to mark that decision, he went to the back of a Bible and he wrote two words in the back of a Bible. In the back of his Bible, he wrote this, no reserve. No reserve. Well, after the trip, obviously, he returned to America and he immediately enrolled in Yale University to begin this process of preparation for the mission field. While a student, his freshman year in the university, 
he decided he felt burdened to start groups for the students in which they would gather to pray, to read the Bible, and just grow spiritually. And by the end of his first year, the end of his freshman year, there were 150 fellow freshmen in one of these groups. By the time he graduated, by the end of his senior year, there were 1,000 of the 1,300 students of Yale as members of this group. Outside campus, uh, William Borden began and launched and actually founded himself what was called the Yale Hope Mission. It was a mission there in the city of New Haven to care for the people living on the streets there in the city. But whether it was in class or outside the classroom, everything William Borden did with his life, even as a young man, was motivated by his sense of calling to missions. And by this point in his life, that focus of missions had become very specific. He was feeling called to do ministry to Muslims living in China. Well, after graduation from Yale, because of family connections, just because of who he was, he received multiple, multiple job offers, high-paying job offers. And William turned every one of them down because he was determined to prepare and give his life on the mission field. And once again, to mark that decision, that he would not go back on the decision, he wrote a second set of words in the back of his Bible. And that second set of words was no retreat. Well, after graduation at uh, Yale, he, he then enrolled in Princeton Seminary to, to ultimately prepare for ordination. He was ordained, and he immediately set sail for China. But on the way, he, he made, quote-unquote, a detour in Egypt to do language studies to prepare to, to understand the, the Arabic language. But shortly after arriving, he contracted meningitis. And literally less than a month after arriving, William Borden, at 26 years of age, died. But before he died, knowing that his life would go no further, that that mission would never be accomplished, but he had been faithful in the process, he went to the back of his Bible, and he wrote one final set of words in the back of his Bible. And so beneath no reserve and no retreat, he wrote no regrets. Now let me ask you a question, and honestly answer it for yourself. Should he have had regrets? I think most of us, if not all of us, sitting here today and maybe watching online would say, no, 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 he lived a great life. And I would agree with you, he lived a great life. But here's the thing that troubles me. I suspect that many of us, if we're honest, would not choose that same life for ourselves. We wouldn't choose that hardship, that sacrifice, dying at 26 years of age. I want you to imagine a line stretching out beyond these walls. And I want you not only stretch out beyond these walls, but I want you to see this line stretching as far as the eye can see. Then I want you to imagine you get on a plane and you follow these lines, the ends of the lines, and you ultimately discover that that line stretches around the globe, out into space, and beyond our universe. The line is never-ending. And if you can imagine that, then I want you to understand, folks, that is a pretty accurate picture of eternity. And now I want you to imagine that you take a pen, I give you a pen or you take a pencil, and on that line, anywhere on the line that you choose, you make just a scratch, just a scratch. And I want you to understand, folks, that scratch is your life and mine in the scope of eternity. Now, 
Common sense would tell you and tell me that we ought to live our lives here and now in light of the line, right? But the reality is we often live our lives in light of a scratch. And as a reality, we end up living scratch lives with scratch goals and scratch priorities. But not Esther. I want you to notice what we read next in her story. It says, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think because you are in the king's house that you alone of all Jews will escape. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your family will perish. And who knows, but you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about Mordecai, I'm going, that was pretty bra- brassy, right? I mean, that, that, I mean, he did not mince his words one bit, and given the stakes, he shouldn't. And so what he did, without blinking, Mordecai laid it out for Esther. He said, this is your moment, Esther. Will you or won't you do something great with your life? But I want you to know this, Esther. If you don't, God will find someone else. But understand... In this moment, God's plan is for you to be that person. So how did she respond? Did she hunker down and look out for number one? Or did Esther choose greatness through sacrifice? Well, let's find out. Let's read on. It says, Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are at Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, nights, three days, night or day. And I, my maids, will fast and do as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. I love that. Esther clearly chose sacrifice over personal preservation. Even though it didn't make personal sense, even though it didn't make professional sense, even though it didn't make common sense, But Esther chose sacrifice because it made God sense. Absolute kingdom and eternal sense. So Esther went to the king because of that choice. Fully expecting, I'm sure in fear and trembling, fully expecting she was probably going to die, that she would be executed. But if you know the story, you know that instead of ordering her execution, the king did in fact extend the golden scepter and spared her life. And when Esther then explained to him what Mordecai had been doing, or rather what Haman had been doing, he ordered Haman's execution and then took Mordecai and elevated him to that position. And because of that, the Jewish people were saved. The people from whom eventually came Jesus, the Savior of the world, the one who gave the ultimate sacrifice for you and me by dying on the cross. Here's my point. Most of us spend our entire life pursuing the American dream. We pursue the American dream instead of God's kingdom, instead of the things of God. And when we're given the chance for a moment of greatness, to choose greatness through sacrifice, what we typically do, and again, I'm not speaking for you, but what I'm saying we typically do, is we opt instead to continue to chase after the American dream. But David... Platt, in his book, Radical, challenges all that thinking. I want you to hear what he writes. He says this, We stand on the porch of eternity. We'll soon stand before God to give an account for the time, the resources, the gifts, and ultimately the gospel he entrusted to us. 
And when that day comes, I am convinced we will not wish we had given more of ourselves to living the American dream. We'll not wish we had more money, acquired more stuff, lived more comfortably, taken more vacations, watched more television, pursued greater retirement, or been more successful in the eyes of the world. He writes, instead, we'll wish we had been given ourselves more fully and completely to living radical obedience. So can I ask you a question? Answer it for yourself. So what sacrifice are you willing to make for the kingdom of God? Are you willing to give sacrificially, like many of you did, for the Christmas Eve offering to do week in and week out? Are you willing to serve sacrificially with children, with teens? Are, are you willing to build relationships sacrificially in small groups, or perhaps leading a small group? Are, are you willing to take moral stands sacrificially? What are you willing to do? What are you willing to sacrifice for the kingdom of God to go forward? Where are you choosing to trade the American dream so that you can be a part of God advancing his mission in the world? I would suggest to you, for my analysis, Esther lived a great life. And I believe reading her life many, many times over these years now as a follower of Jesus, I, I believe with all my heart that looking back on her scratch, she would say she doesn't have a single regret. Because Esther lived with no reserve, no retreat, and no regret. The question I want to pose for you to think about today and the rest of this week is simply this, folks. Where, where are you choosing to live that same kind of life, to make that same kind of sacrifice of no reserve, no regret, no retreat, so that one day, the very thing that was said of Esther can be said about you, that you lived a life of sacrifice. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, I don't know how others react to the story of Esther to William Board, but I just tell you, Father, candidly, openly, that I am humbled and challenged by people like Esther and William Borden. People who sacrifice so greatly and so incredibly for your kingdom by making choices that deprive them of privilege, deprive them of position, of pleasure, possessions. People who did the one thing that our culture and many of us, our instincts tell us is stupid to do. And that is to sacrifice for the sake of your kingdom. And yet, Father, we, we know that your kingdom, your church, and its mission is built on your people sacrificing. And Father, we need to remember that as followers of Jesus. And so today in this moment, as we pray silently and corporately together, I say, Father, will you please help us realize we cannot choose to be great without choosing sacrifice. And then will you help each and every one of us in this moment and certainly during this week to ask the question and then answer the question, where am I one sacrifice away from the great life that God's calling me to live? And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Jerry, for uh, that message today. And as we think about sacrifice, I want to encourage you uh, to use that green card uh, today. Maybe if you are willing to uh, maybe write on that card, what is it that you feel like God is asking you to do? Something that he's maybe asking you to sacrifice. Maybe you need prayer 
uh, to help with that decision. I encourage you to write that on the back of the card. And uh, as a staff, we get together and we pray along with you guys and uh, ask God about those concerns. So uh, if that's something, I know sacrifice is not easy for us, especially in our American culture. Um, to give up something, to sacrifice something is difficult. So let us walk that with you. Uh, if you would trust us with that, we are there to do that. You know, something else that's hard to sacrifice sometimes is our finances. And a couple of weeks back, uh, we talked about first fruits, and I know it's been several Sundays since then, so I'm going to remind you of that verse. But um, this is from King Solomon. It's in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. And it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. And so you might be thinking, what is a first fruit? And what's that got to do with us here in 2022? So I'm glad you asked because this made sense actually to the people that were living in the society at that time. They were an agricultural people. Um, but let's explain it a little bit. So first fruits just is that very first part of the crop when it was harvested uh, in each season. And so throughout scripture, God calls uh, his people to prioritize him by giving uh, their first and best to him. And so for people who depended on the harvest for food uh, to feed their families, obviously that was a pretty big deal. And so, and obviously if you have people in your household that you have to feed, you know, of, of your income, you know how huge that is. So why did God require people to give to him the first and best? It's not because God needed their first fruits, uh, because God's not needy. He has everything, right? And so it's all his. But God knows that we need to give. And so every single thing that passes through our hands, uh, we need to give back to him. So back in that day, when people's well-being depended on them planting and harvesting, giving God their first and their best, this was a concrete way of prioritizing uh, God by giving. And so it's the very same for us today. Trusting God with some of our income is good, but when we choose to give God the first of our income, something changes. Giving becomes worship in a new way. So our challenge this year, part of our sacrifice I'm asking us, is to commit prioritizing God in every way this year, including uh, worshiping, worshiping Him by giving. So whether that's a dollar or a tenth of your income or even beyond that, I encourage you to begin your giving by prioritizing God this year. Give Him your first, and He will become first in your life. And with that being said, I want to remind you as well that this is our last Sunday to give to the Christmas Eve offering for Kenbrook Camp. Uh, it was an incredible outpouring that you gave, and so thank you so much that you did that. But if you still would like to give and you haven't done so yet, you can do that today. But this is the very last day to do that. Uh, you can give online. Uh, there's In the chat link, there's going to be a give link. You can also go to the website. Um, here in person, there's envelopes at the back of the room if you'd like to give your offering today in that way. Thank you so much for being here and worshiping together with us. So glad to be back with you, and uh, I hope you guys have a great rest of your day, and I'll see you next week.